Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 28 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Jim Sampson, who is Director of Retirement Advisory Services at Hilb Group Retirement Services, which is a large property and casualty agency backed by the Carlisle Group. Jim and I first met at the Wealth at Work conference, where we were on a joint panel together about alternative assets such as cryptocurrencies and defined contribution plans. It was a well-attended session, and I was really impressed by his insights, especially his ability to simplify complex ideas. We were also both finalists for the 2021 Top Advisor by Participant Outcomes Award from 401k Specialist, which he won, by the way, and so I figured he'd be a great guest on the podcast. He didn't disappoint. On this episode, Jim and I discussed the merger of his prior firm, Cornerstone Retirement Advisors, into Hilb in 2015 and the benefits of being part of a large property and casualty agency his strategy of essentially being an internal retirement wholesaler to the PNC teams, and how this has supercharged his growth, how he focuses a significant amount of time on educating clients and his emphasis on teaching them so they can learn, how he uses stories and analogies to communicate complex ideas in a simple way, why he uses the phrase cost of advisory services instead of the word fees to avoid negative connotations, and why they've avoided getting into wealth management. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Jim Sampson, welcome to the Fiduciary You podcast. Thanks so much for being a guest today. Thanks for having me, Josh. You and I actually met for the first time a couple of weeks ago down at the Wealth at Work conference. We, we somehow or another, we drew the short end of the stick and got, both got put on a, a crypto and 401k panel, which actually turned out to be a really, really good panel discussion overall. But um, you also, we were both top advisor by participant outcomes by 401k specialist in 2021. You actually were named the TAPO of the year by 401k specialist and, and left the rest of us in the dust. <laughs> and so I was like, well, man, this, this guy is, he's a good dude. Plus he must be really special. So let's get him on the podcast. So I'm really excited about our conversation today. No, I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be a lot of fun. Good stuff. So for listeners, maybe talk a little bit about um, your director of retirement services at Hill Retirement Group. Maybe talk a little bit about you, your background. You've actually got a really cool story we talked about before we started recording about how you kind of got into the industry. Yeah. Maybe give a little bit of background about kind of who you are and, and you've been doing this a long time. How'd you I'll call it stumble into the retirement space? Sure. So I, I was actually working in retail after college and a good friend of mine that I had grown up with, you know, in high school. And he, he called me out of the blue one day and he says, Hey, you know, are you looking to get out of retail? My, my firm is hiring. Do you know anything about 401k? I said, I can spell it. He says, well, I know you're good with numbers. You know, we were always in, you know, higher level math classes together. And, you know, he and I ran the NCAA basketball tournament pool in high school together. So, and we were running fantasy football leagues together. So he knew I was good with numbers. And so I ended up going to work at his firm. And, you know, funny story about how I got the job. We we're in a fantasy football league and most of the guys in the league were either friends from high school or my college buddies where with those guys, nothing is off limits. 
And there was one guy in the league who worked at Chris's firm, my friend Chris. And uh, he was just kind of fly on the wall watching, you know, the spectacle of a bunch of knuckleheads doing a fantasy football draft. And he was sitting right next to me the whole night. And at one point, he drafted a guy that was retired. And without even thinking, I just kind of looked at him and said, oh, you better get his backup. That guy's retired. And the room exploded in laughter. And I kind of felt bad afterwards because I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't one of my old buddies that I can just bust his chops freely. So I felt kind of bad about it after the fact. But so when my friend Chris called me and asked me to come interview, he says, oh, yeah, you know, Jimmy T from our fantasy football league. I said, yeah, he goes, that's who you're going to interview with. So I go in for my interview and I'm a little nervous about the whole thing. And we sit down and I'm, I'm like all friendly with him and stuff. And as soon as we sit down, he has a stern look on his face and he says, so you want to talk about that retired kicker I drafted? And after he let me sweat for a couple seconds, he goes, ah, I'm just kidding. I'm busting your chops. That was hilarious. And needless to say, I ended up getting the job. So that's how I got into the world of 401k working at a, a third-party administration firm in the Boston area. Awesome. Awesome. And then you, you did that for a couple of years. You moved over to the wholesaler side, went to work for Transamerica, both as an internal and then an external. And then you wound up deciding to kind of move on to the advisory side of the business. What, what kind of prompted that? What, what made you, and this I think was early 2000s, yeah, like, what, what was it that, that kind of got you over the hump and, and made you decide you wanted to go in that direction? Yeah. So it was in 2003. What I realized was, you know, I, I was working at Transamerica and Transamerica was one of those progressive record keepers that was talking about this new thing called new comparability where most record keepers would just kind of leave that to the third party administrator. We as we were talking about as a record keeper. And what I found was I was going out and, you know, brokers were bringing me out to sell plans and they would literally bring me in and say, this is Jim. He's my 401k guy. Go get it, kid. And they would literally bring me in. I would do the entire sale. I'd do the plan design. I'd do the investments. I literally did everything start to finish. And those guys got paid. And I'll never forget, there was and one- got to, be the, got to be the hero. Exactly. They're the, the good trouble. guy. I'm just the schlep right. behind the scenes doing all the work. Right. And I'll never forget, I sold a fairly large plan at the time with a broker with this you know, old-time restaurant that you know in that local area it was an institution and we sold the plan and i'll never forget the broker made i, I don't know something like $30,000 the general agent who introduced me to the guy 3 years prior got a check for like 22,500 bucks and i think i got paid like 7 grand <laughs> and i said i'm on the wrong side of this i figured that you know i'm I'm going out there and trying to shove the square peg in the round hole constantly because I have one product to sell. Whereas if I go over to the advisory side, you know, I, I can design the peg to fit the hole no matter what it is. So that was kind of my motivation for making that happen. So in middle of 2003, I jumped ship and I went and worked at a employee benefits firm as their 401k guy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. I had uh, I had Jania Stout on the show a few weeks ago. Um, and Jania and I actually live about well, she just moved, but we lived about a mile and a half away from each other, and uh, have been 
good competitors, kind of frenemies within the business, but but personal friends for a long time. And I originally met her. She was actually at Fidelity and she was a rock star wholesaler. And she had a pretty similar story was that that, you know, she got to a point where, you know, she wanted to kind of felt like she could make a bigger difference in the industry being on the advisory side as well. So it's interesting just your your kind of transition because I, I, and you may have the same, like I have over the years had a lot of wholesalers on the floor, on the record keeping side that are like, I really want to get into the kind of the advisory business. It's a good, historically has been kind of a good, you know, a good well-paying gig on the, on the record keeping side, the wholesaling side. And, you know, they just kind of feel like they're stuck because they, you know, they probably make too much money to be able to go kind of start over and get into the advisory side, even though that might be a better long-term play for them. You and I are similar ages. So, you know, when you got into the side of the business, you were not right out of school, but but still kind of on the younger side of your career. So it's probably good timing to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I took the the 50% pay cut when I went from wholesaler to advisor. And I guess I, I'm probably fortunate I only took a 50% pay cut because, right. you know, I, I talk to record-keeping wholesalers all the time. And the struggle is that they're used to making that really nice base salary, great commission structure. They got all the perks, you know, yep. the car, the corporate car and all that fun stuff to come over to the advisory side with no book of business. You're basically starting at zero. Yeah, and that's, exactly. that, that's a that's a really tough pill to swallow. Right. Yeah. It, it, though I have seen that the advisors who can, that make that move are in a really good position because they've got, you know, strong existing relationships. And if you can get over that hump, it's just like starting any business, right? You, you, most businesses, I think 95% of small businesses fail within the first five years, usually because they're undercapitalized. But if you can give this business enough time and that's, you know, it's funny, everybody thinks it's, you know, it, it this is not a overnight type of thing. But if you can give it enough time, if you can commit, let's say, five years to really mastering your craft and, you know, putting the work in, phenomenal, phenomenal career. Yeah. So you went to the benefits side from that perspective. You know, you guys started a retirement group. And then I think you, a number of years ago, you guys merged into Hilb, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So we had started, I had partnered with some benefits guys back in 2009. And we started Cornerstone Retirement Advisors. It was a kind of a subsidiary of Cornerstone Group, which is a big benefit shop. Mm -hmm. And so we ran Cornerstone Retirement Advisors from 2009 to 2015. And we were looking to merge with a local property casualty agency. And to do so, we needed to get some outside funding. And instead of going and just joining one of the big firms, we went out and we got some, we partnered up with a private equity firm. And they said, hey, we really love what you guys are doing, but you're just too small to do a deal for what we need to do. And they said, but hey, we've got this group down in Richmond, Virginia. I think they're in your business and they're trying to do the same thing. Why don't we put you together and make one big deal? And that's how we met the Hill Group in Richmond. And we decided we all merged with them. And as they say, the rest is history. So the Hill Group has been buying up property and casualty agencies, as well as benefit shops for the last six years plus, and just growing like a weed. We've already had private equity partners swap out once. We're now backed by Carlisle, which is kind of the 800-pound gorilla. So you, you we're growing like crazy. We've got great resources. It's just, it, it's an unbelievable opportunity. And the fun part for me is that 
I get to run the retirement group and work with all of the benefit shops across the entire Hill Group footprint. So I've had a chance to build some really good relationships with some super smart, successful people. And it's great for them because they never had the opportunity to be able to offer 401k amongst a number of other things we do, but they've never had 401k as an offering before. And so it's like a, a whole new world for these guys to be able to say, Hey, we've got a 401k expert we can bring in. So it's been a fun ride. You brought up a couple of things, just, just being interested that, that I think will be interesting to talk about. So one is just private equity, obviously. And I've talked about this on, on other episodes as well, but there's a massive amount of money going into the retirement industry across all channels from a PE perspective. Yeah. Love to hear kind of your perspective of, of what the good and the bad of kind of being with a PE backed shop is um, and what the experience of like when those, you know, those private equity partners turn, because, you know, by definition, private equity isn't a long-term investor right. per se. So what that looks like, and then let's talk a little bit about just the convergence, right? The PNC, the health, the retirement, we obviously hear a lot about convergence and, and you know, some, some of the other firms probably on the retirement side, some of the other aggregators are, are Hilb is a, is a, is a really big firm in terms of, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. I would say maybe in some ways, maybe less well known in the retirement side yeah. than the PNC and the benefits side. But what has that experience been like? And in a lot of ways, it sounds like obviously you probably still pick up direct clients that that you initiate those new relationships with. But it sounds like in a lot of ways you've cultivated relationships with these benefits folks that have relationships with, you know, the end user plan sponsor. And you're able to kind of come in and be accretive to that relationship. So maybe talk a little bit about that experience as well and kind of what you've learned in terms of building those relationships on the benefit side. And what are the things that have kind of worked well? And what are the things where, you know, if they haven't worked well with certain benefits folks, why? Yeah. So what's interesting is most of the business that I've done over the last, call it two, maybe three years, it's almost all referral based. And it goes back to what I was saying before about how all of a sudden you've got all these benefit shops that have been around for years and years, very successful, super smart people. And all of a sudden they get a new toy to play with. And all of a sudden they can, you're the new toy, I'm the new toy. But uh, yeah, they, they, all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a minute, we, we can create a new revenue stream. You know, the way I explain it to these guys is look, they've already said yes to you for many years. Mm -hmm. We're just going to add one service to the benefits offering that they have because 401k is a benefit. And uh, it's just a little bit different. You know, it's kind of the land of the misfit toys here. So there are some shops in our network that they have just totally latched onto this opportunity and they are always talking about it. They're very proactive about it. Not everybody is, and, and that's okay. There are still a lot of benefits folks that, you know, they, they kind of stay in their lane and they, you know, they make sure they take care of their clients on their expertise, which is the benefits. And it's a little more of a reactive uh, process on my end where, you know, if, if a client says, hey, do you guys do or, or I heard you did 401k, 403b, whatever it might be, can you help us out? They'll, they'll reach right out to me and, and we'll, we'll get something going with them. But it, it, again, it's been a lot of fun getting to know people from all around the country, really. You know, we've got offices from New England all the way down to Florida and as far west as 
Michigan and Indiana now. So, you know, we're, we're slowly but surely starting to make, make our way west. But along the East Coast, you know, that's really the focus. And our M&A team in, in Richmond has just done a fantastic job, you know, vetting out these groups because it seems like every group they bring on is just super high quality. You know, they're just, they, they know their stuff. They're really good at what they do and they're great people. So that has been a lot of fun for me. Because do you insult them in their fantasy football drafting style with, at the first meeting? Um, or, or I usually wait till the second that, meeting do you to keep do that. that. A little second meeting, yeah, yeah. Usually the second meeting, I'm busting their chops about something. But that's smart. Um, that's smart. <laughs> have you spent time in some ways? You know, if I think about this, it's kind of like those benefits folks are kind of like so that you can kind of not all that different. Obviously you're still the advisor, but, but probably similar to what you learned back in the day, wholesaling, right? Yeah. That's being kind of a good part, being a good partner. Have you, do you spend time trying to train those folks to understand how to identify good opportunities and then essentially be able to go kind of pre-sell as opposed to, Hey, let me just introduce you to Jim. Are you, are, are there some of them that you've kind of taught to really do some of the legwork for you? Yeah, it's it's funny. I you know I, I find myself more and more going back to my wholesaler days, where mm. they own the relationship and they're just bringing me in as the product specialist, and we go in. The difference is that we can you know we're not limited to one product, and we're also it's no longer sell it and move on. We have to take ownership of that that client service experience on an ongoing basis. So our, our team has to really focus on making sure we're doing our job, not only so we don't lose our client, but also so that somebody else doesn't lose a client. Because if we screw up, we could be putting their business yeah. at risk. And th that's, that's a big responsibility. And, and our team is obviously up for it. We, we recognize that. So we have to make sure we take extra special care of these folks. So it's really helped us up our game. You know, obviously, it's been a great thing for everybody involved. But yeah, I, I, I absolutely see myself, you know, putting on that wholesaler hat quite often, whether it's at a corporate training event or whether it's just, hey, I'm visiting an office and I'm going to get together with some folks and, and, you know, talk about, hey, here's some of the things we see. I like to share a lot of case studies with people, just an example of, hey, here's a group that we Love did it. because that might trigger yeah. somebody's memory. Oh, wait a minute. I got a group like that. It might get them to think about going to talk to that group about it, but. I think that, you know, when, when we first start working with a group, so as not to overwhelm them, especially because they're probably very new to the Hilb group. So just onboarding with us is like drinking through a fire hose. So I usually try to make it very simple for them to say, Hey, look, just, you know, when you're talking about 401k, just get as much basic information as you can, but at the end, just make an intro. You know, whether it's a, you know, make an email introduction. If you want to do a, you know, a Zoom call introduction, we can do that. And I always tell our folks, you know, I always give them the option. You can be as involved as you want or as passive as you want. So if you want to be on the intro call, I'd love to have you make a nice, smooth transition. If you just want me to run with it, I'll run with it. Fully capable of doing that. So we, we have some of each and, and Whatever it is, that, that's okay. A lot of times, you know, they have a really good relationship. They're like, look, I made the introduction. Run with it. Go ahead. I trust you. The more and more they do it, the more and more they learn. And now they start to know some of the things we're looking for. They know some of the data points to collect. 
they know some of the buzzwords, which is really cool when they start to pick those things up. So, you know, obviously that always gears towards finding, you know, better prospects, which make better clients. We love an educated client because it just, it makes it easier for everybody. So that's been a, uh, that's been a fun, again, a fun part of what I'm doing is not just meeting all these new prospects and clients, which is awesome, but again, building relationships with all these folks in our organization so that, you know, when, when we do actually get to see each other, not on a computer screen these days, it's a lot of fun to actually see people in person. So, yeah. So there, there's a number of different things and I, I want to get back to this idea of, I, I love what you said, like we love an educated client and, and you've got, we were talking before we started recording and, and I think some similar philosophies in terms of trying to make the complex yeah. simple. But before we kind of transition to that, what have you found just in terms of this kind of Zoom world and just the sales process in general? You know, it, it, if you've got an existing relationship with someone and it's more of like a touching base or like with a plan sponsor committee meeting where it's more of like an informational kind of check-in or whatnot, you know, and there's familiarity, Zoom will suffice. But I, I found that if you really need people to make decisions or you need to influence people, being remote is really, really hard. And if you're trying to, you know, sell remotely, it's really interesting. What's been your experience kind of with that during the pandemic? So we had our biggest year from a sales perspective in 2020. And we're going to blow that out of the water this year. And it's mm. been almost entirely virtual. And wow. the only way that happens is the great relationships that our people have with their clients. The fact right. that, as you mentioned, you know, they already have a relationship. They've, the client has already said yes to their services and they, they really value the services that our teams are bringing to the table. For them to make an introduction for a new line of business has actually been a lot easier than you would expect. Do you think it's because that relationship exists as opposed to, let's say you source a new plan sponsor directly yourself, not through one of the benefits mm -hmm. relationships, let's say, and they don't have any relationship with Hilb. Is yeah, that a different story? It's a lot harder to do that in a virtual world because you don't get to, when you're in the room with somebody, you get to read their visual, you know, their body language. You get to read the visual signs they're giving you. That's almost impossible to do through a computer screen. You know, it, it, it's it, and half the time, especially if they have their screen off, if they have the camera off, right. it's, it's you know, you're talking to a wall, literally. If they don't give you the courtesy of turning on their camera, probably not getting that unless deal. Yeah, unless there's something really, you know, pressing behind the scenes where they need you. Yeah it's probably not going to go as well. So again, people tell me I have a great face for radio. They prefer my cameras off, but you know, oh, I've been told I got a face only a mother could love. So I hear you. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's one of those things where again, our whole business is such a relationship business and right. that really is everything to us is that relationship because without that, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to do, you know, from the shoulders up. It's almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, you, you as we were talking before, and, and you used a couple of phrases that I love, but, you know, one of the, your philosophies is around simplifying the complex. Maybe talk a little bit about Talk a little yeah. bit about that because we were we were we were going back and forth and just talking about how kind of as an industry we try to make things more complex than they need to be because we we think it makes us sound smart, not realizing that in many ways it does the exact opposite of what we intended to do. So talk a little bit about your philosophy around that because I think it's a good one. And I think especially advisors would benefit from kind of hearing the way you kind of approach. Uh, yeah. approach things. I've always been of the belief that we as an industry try way too hard to come up with the next silver bullet, the next magic mouse trap. You know, th this is going to be the new thing that's going to dominate the 401k industry. And everybody's going to do it this way. And so much of that stuff has been a check the box so you can say you have it, but no one ever uses it. Right. And I think that we overcomplicate things way too much. Mm. The reality is the very vast majority of employers that we work with and their employees, they just don't get this stuff. And that's okay. It's not taught at a high school level. It's not taught at a college level, at least not universally. It should be. You know, I have a freshman in high school right now who all he does is squawk about some of the classes he has to take. And you know, while as a parent, I have to tell him, yes, you have to do your homework and do the classes. Privately, I'm thinking to myself, he's never going to use this again in his life. Why can't we teach him about investing? Why can't we teach him about budgeting? Basic stuff that every person needs to know. So I, I think we overcomplicate things. And you mentioned the whole, you know, coming in and, and sounding smart. You know, prior to COVID, when we did all our meetings in person and, you know, wearing a suit in every meeting. And, you know, I, I would always tell clients, I'd say, look, you know, when we come in and talk to your employees, we understand that. Most of them have never been taught anything about savings or investing. And the first time most people get an education on this topic is when the funny looking guy in the suit walks in and tries to explain it to them at their first job. Yeah. For many of the employees in the room that day, that's going to be them because they're not ever been trained. They haven't been trained in this kind of stuff. So we need to really simplify everything. I, I always joke that we need to Fisher price the heck out of everything. And it's because most people just don't get it. And I remember when I learned it. I mentioned that, you know, when I got my first job in 401k, the best I could do was spell it. And so I remember back to those days and how I learned it. And I've always said that that my greatest joy in this business is when I do an education meeting and I go from being the teacher in Ferris Bueller's class where everybody's completely checked out, half the people are drooling on their desk. You know, I go from that to all of a sudden seeing the facial expressions change and you can actually see the light bulb gone over somebody's head. That is the coolest thing going when you can actually see that happen. That only happens if we simplify things to a level that everyone can understand. So I always use a lot of stories and analogies to take something that's a complex topic and bring it down to the level that everyone can understand. So. I think that everything we do from the way we run our business to the way we work with our employer or clients and to the way we speak to the employees, we really try to simplify everything to its absolute bare bones components to just make sure that everybody gets it. You know, we talked about that lowest common denominator and making sure that, you know, we design the plan for that person 
who's least likely yeah. to get any of this stuff. So, yeah, yeah that was we, as we were talking. That was one of the and, and you got you have similar philosophy. But you know, I back in the day I used to talk with committees and I would ask them. I'd say, you know. I want you to think of the least sophisticated employee at your company. You don't have to give me the, their name, but I just want you to think, do you have somebody in mind? And everybody would nod their head. And I would say, you know, we need to design this plan from, you know, the services that are offered to the fees, to the investments, to how we design the plan, really with that person in mind and make sure that they don't, you know, how do we put guardrails up so that, that or bumpers, you know, I, I, I have four kids as well. I got a soft, my oldest is a sophomore in high school. You know, my youngest is seven. But when my daughter was in kindergarten, I took her to a, a birthday party. It was at a bowling alley. You know, you've probably been there as well. Anybody who has have kids have probably gone to the, the birthday party at the bowling alley. And they put up bumpers, right, yeah. for the kids. And they put those bumpers up so those kids knock down pins because they know if they just throw gutter balls the entire time, the kids aren't going to have fun. They're going to hold their breath. They're going to stamp their feet. They're going to throw temper tantrums. You know, and I remember afterwards... We got in the car and uh, I asked my daughter, I was like, did you have fun? And she's like, that was awesome. Like, I want to have my birthday party here because she had so much fun. She thought she was, you know, going to go on the, uh, on the PBA. She was, you know, throwing strikes all the time. I'm not sure she was good, but because those bumpers basically guided the process. And I, I remember saying like the bowling alley wasn't dummies. They engineered the process in a way that they knew it was going to be a good outcome and a good experience. And I, I think that's, you know, too often to your point, I think advisors, even companies, they want to make things way more complex. But if we think about instead of, and sophistication is not the same thing as being smart, right? You can, you can be smart. I think there's an elegance in, in simplicity and there is a real sophistication, but if you can engineer so that, that call it that less sophisticated employee doesn't have to, to kind of level up the people who are sophisticated, they'll figure it out on their own. But if you can design a plan in a way that makes sure that that person, that least sophisticated person doesn't throw a gutter ball with their yeah. retirement savings. That's a winning value prop. And I've always found probably like you that that plan sponsors really connect with that. There's a great saying by Woody Guthrie, and he said, it's simple to make things complex, but it takes true genius to make the complex simple. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Most of my clients, you know, you're always trying to find out what differentiates you with folks. And I would always say that you know, if you ask most of my clients, you know, what do you like the most about working with Jim? They will say it's because we understand what the heck he's talking about. And that's a big deal in our world because, I mean, yeah. how many acronyms do we have? We live in acronym hell. We got fancy terms for everything. And for some reason, we just love to tell people how smart we are by rattling all that stuff off. And we might as well be yeah. speaking another language. So... The first time I went on Retireholics, I've been on there a couple of times and I went in kind of like eyes, you know, wide shut. And they have this, this acrosin, right? If you use like an acronym called acrosin, you have to like drink from like, you know, I had like whiskey. <laughs> like I didn't, I'm not a big drinker, but like I, I use so many acronyms on that first, on that first show until I figured it out. Like by the end of it, like I went back and watched the video. It, it was not pretty. <laughs> I agree with you. Like the, the just, the constant use of, of acronyms is there's something about when you can make things yeah. simple that it builds, right? It builds trust. It builds, there's a level of vulnerability when somebody doesn't feel like you're talking yeah. over their head. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you said, this is very much a relationship yeah. business. I think the most successful advisory firms are the ones that can deliver trust at scale. 
And a lot of that starts with how we speak and the words that we use. And, and even to your point, like, Hey, is there this connotation of somebody coming in with a, you know, with a suit and a tie and it, it being kind of stuffy instead of making it engaging. And that I think is another point where I think you're really on, like, it's no wonder you've had the success you've had is just this idea that if you can teach people, if you can educate people, one of the things you said early on was that people learn by doing. So that's a great point. What's your philosophy in terms of not just how to kind of talk at people, talk over their head? Obviously, you're you're trying to make things more simple. But what do you do and how do you approach not just the teaching, but helping people learn? And you got a cool philosophy in terms of like why people need to kind of skin their knees and, and bruise their elbows when they learn. How do you do yeah, that? So, you know, there's that old saying, you can't learn to ride a bike in a manual. You know, you got to get on the bike. You got to ride it. And guess what? You're going to fall down a couple of times. You're going to scrape your knees up. You're going to go over the handlebars. That's part of the learning process. And if we can kind of take some of that out of the equation for folks and help them learn from others' mistakes, hopefully we can make a smoother ride for them. But you mentioned something that I firmly believe in, and that's just, it's the words that we say. And I, I know you've seen the studies that have been done in our industry about this, but it, it really comes back to some really simple stuff. You know, for example, the term plan sponsor. Now, you and I know exactly what that means. Anyone in our industry knows exactly what that yeah. means. Guess who doesn't know what that means? Plan sponsors. They're employers. They're not plan sponsors. They're employers. And they don't employ participants. They employ employees. So we need to call them that. Great One point. of the things I, I picked up on a handful of years ago, and I've really tried to incorporate it in everything we do. There is an evil, ugly F word in our industry. Fees. It's a word we don't use. We don't have advisory fees. We have a cost for our advisory services. And it all goes back to the fact that if you think of the word fee, what pops into your mind? Probably your cell phone bill, your utility bill, you know, where they've got fee after fee after fee just lined on that. My four kids. That's what pops <laughs> into my mind. Yeah, yeah. My four kids. So people think of when they hear the word fee, it just carries a negative connotation. Mm. But everybody readily accepts and understands that things have either a cost or a price. And no one seems to be offended by those things. So I yeah. always try to replace the F word with cost or price because it definitely makes for a smoother conversation and just people accept it a lot more. So that's one, those are some examples of things that we do, but we really, you know, we try to eliminate the acronyms. If I use an acronym, I always follow it with what the acronym stands for so that and then I, you know, like, for example, we talk about the, the ADP test, which, by the way, not to be confused with the payroll company, because people confuse that one all the time. And then I explain to them what the average deferral percent test is and why it's important. And, you know, when I explain that, it's, you know, we could sit there and get into the math of it and we completely have people head spinning. So I always explain it as it's like a seesaw. You take the big kids and put them on one side. You take the, all the little kids, you put them on the other side. And the seesaw has got to do this. I got to get my hands on the camera here. It's got to do this, right? It can't be, you know, one way or the other. So people tend to get those mental. That's visions. an awesome analogy. That, that's an awesome analogy, by the way. I have a, one of my mentors 
for a long time has said, he or she who controls the metaphor controls the conversation. And I think that, that, you know, I, I, I posted a video on LinkedIn last week uh, that I was intending. I thought I was going to catch a bunch of arrows. I was actually surprised at how well people kind of responded to it, but it was back to the words that we use um, within the industry. And what, what kind of got me going, and I've been guilty of using plan sponsor and participant, but this idea, a lot of the talk that we're hearing in certain corners of the industry is around who owns the participant, who owns their data, and then quickly followed after, and this was the, the kind of the, the, the crux of the video, quickly after that is how do we monetize? Yeah. You and I were at a conference together where like those words were being used. They're showing up in articles. And quite frankly, it just kind of pissed me off because I, I one, I feel like that's kind of offensive. Like nobody right. owns participants. Nobody owns their data. And this idea of like, how do we monetize? Even though the intent might be good, we want to help more people, but this idea of mo like, how do we monetize the participant, which they, you know, it is, I think it's offensive. And I think it, quite frankly, I think that like we shouldn't be looking at American workers as, you know, financial targets with bullseyes on their back. And that's what I said. But but one of the one of my observations is this, is that the words that we use matter, right? Because words influence our thoughts and our thoughts shape our beliefs. And ultimately what we believe drives in our behavior. And I love what you bring up there in terms of like the words being cognizant especially as advisors within the industry that have really been, I think, the, the, the standard bearers of what it means to be fiduciaries and put the interest yeah. of American workers before our own. But we have to be very careful in the industry about the words that we use because it matters. Ultimately, we may not think it, it matters, but it does ultimately, it will help drive or it will determine and drive the types of behavior that we engage in. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're the translators, right? I mean. People are looking at us as the subject matter expert. We're the ones who have to translate this complicated. I mean, how big is the internal revenue code? Thousands of pages. And, you know, right. we get to deal with this one subsection 401 parentheses K. And we have to interpret all that stuff for these people. And um, how many rules do we have in these plans that make no common sense whatsoever? So we have to translate all that stuff. And if all we're doing is parroting the same technical terms that the code has or that kind of, th I mean, we're, we're not helping anybody. So we have to be the translator. So we really have to simplify the message. And I can't overemphasize that enough because I've been in a room where somebody got up and just wanted to tell everybody how smart they were. And it was Ferris Bueller's class. And no, everybody checked out. And nobody got anything out of it. It was a total waste of everybody's time. Do you think the person who got up thought they crushed it, though? Totally. Totally. They walked out <laughs> right. of there. And, and, you know, it's funny. I, I, I remember this happening. And I looked at the guy after the meeting. I said, how do you think it went? The guy was like, freaking nailed that thing. It was awesome. And it goes back to another lesson I learned a long time ago. It goes back to the concept of we have two ears and one out and one mouth. Use them in that proportion. You know, it's funny, you know, if you go into a meeting and you let the other person talk, the likelihood of them thinking it was a successful meeting goes way up. So I, I think a lot of my wholesalers probably take that approach with me. You know, they, they, so how are the kids doing? How's this season going? 
And then they just sit back and let me go. Yeah. And I'll walk into, out of there going, wow, that was a great meeting. So, you know, it's, it's the simple things that we really have got to put more of an, uh, of a focus on, you know, to be successful, quite honestly. I think that was a great discussion. And I think, especially for advisors who are listening to the episode, I think there's, even if, you know, if, if I were you, like I would take the seesaw analogy. I think that was, I think that was, uh, I think that was awesome. And I think there's a lot of other good sound bites. You know, one of the things that you, that was, we were kind of prepping and discussing before the episode started was we talked to, you talked about employee education and just earlier you talked about how, you know, in terms of the, maybe the feel good in terms of knowing what, where maybe you get the greatest joy is when that light bulb moment can happen when you're kind of face to face with uh, an employee and they start to get it. And there's a lot, and I think a lot of advisors feel that way, feel that way as well. More and more advisors, everybody's battling over the participant. That's where these, quite frankly, dumb comments like who owns the participant and monetize and all that stuff comes from. You guys are big on employee education. You've basically let advice be kind of the realm of record keepers to this point and been more of taking the approach of like, instead of us delivering the advice, let's make sure that there is an advice service or program within our plans. And then let's really be more of a traffic cop with, with employees when they do express interest in that, that you know how to point them in the right direction and have a service that's available for them to take advantage, assuming that they want that. Talk a little bit about that decision because a lot of advisors are saying we need to own that. We need to bring that in house. You've taken a little bit of a different approach. What yeah, drove well, that? I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that as a practice, we do not do wealth management. We don't have a wealth management arm. We're not chasing rollovers. We're not chasing outside accounts. In fact, one of the things that I will tell an employer when we're starting to work with them is while we're going to control the employee education campaigns, you know, we generally don't let the record keeper run those campaigns. Unfortunately, I, I used to do that. And what I've found is that a lot of those, there's a lot of PowerPoint slides and, you know, again, going back to a lot of that jargon. They kill it though. They, cru they oh, crushed yeah, it. Yeah, they, they killed it. All right. The meeting was dead. So we run the entire education process and, and we almost never use PowerPoint slides. It's always a conversation. And so we're focusing on trying to get people to a finish line because we recognize that's going to be the starting line of, of another journey. I see our duty as getting people to the finish line safely so that they can start their next journey with some certainty and some confidence. You're like a retirement Sherpa. <laughs> so, but because we don't do the, the wealth management piece of the puzzle, we're not out there trying to tell people where the smartest investment people are going. I'm a retirement guy who learned investments, not the other way around. I started in this world right. as a, T, at a TPA. I was learning that side of it. And then I learned record keeping. Then I came to the investment and advisory side. So you know, we're really trying to get people to that finish line. So it's when we go in and do an employee education session, I really try to focus on the what I think are the three things that most people want to know that are sitting in that room. What's in it for them? How much should they save? And where should they invest their money? And I will often start a meeting by saying, these are the three things I'm going to talk about. If I hit these three things, is everybody in the room cool? And most people do this. 
shake their head up and down. Yep, that's good. Give me what I need to know so I can get the heck out of here and go back to all the work that's sitting on my desk waiting for me. So we're really going to try to focus on those basic things. You know, when it comes to the different types of investors, I think we all would recognize there's a couple different types. There is the do it for me, right? I don't want to know how the pizza's made. I just need to know what kind I want. They're going to use a target date fund, right? Then there's going to be the help me do it. Maybe they're going to be somebody who, you know, picks their mix of funds every year or so, maybe every other year, tweak it here and there, not going to pay a ton of attention. Maybe they're suited for a managed account program. And then there's the, you know, the do-it-yourselfer who they don't want my advice. Maybe they'll use me as a sounding board. But for the most part, they feel like they don't even need me. And that's okay. We'll be there when they do. And if they don't, that's all right. So people generally fall into one of those categories. And we feel that there's an appropriate solution. You know, I mentioned the, you know, the target date investor. I think one thing that we've noticed over the, over the years in our practice, and definitely I've noticed it through the industry is people tend to look at target date funds as a consolation prize. And that's not what it is. Target date funds have a very meaningful purpose. There is a reason so much money goes to target date funds. And it's because people don't understand how this works. They maybe even if they do understand it, they don't want to take the time to manage it. They just want someone who's going to do it right, do it for them. It's been interesting too. You've seen a lot of folks in the industry starting. And I, you know, I really appreciate what you said. You know, so much in life is being able to identify potential conflicts and understand incentives. Like that is just kind of basic human nature. If you can understand where people have a dog Mm -hmm. in the fight and you can understand what their incentives are, you typically have a good framework to evaluate what's kind of being told. You guys aren't, you don't have a wealth practice. You're not, you know, you're not trying to do the convergence while, while Hilb is doing convergence of, you know, health and retirement and PNC, you're not throwing the wealth into the mix there. So if you're not trying to do that, then record keepers who obviously are trying to get into that side of the business, like they're, they're, you know, you just want the participant. You don't have a dog in the fight, right? We're not trying to do this for you. Therefore, we just want to make sure that you know yeah. what's available and you can get to it, you know, as necessary in that kind of alignment of incentives. I think what you're seeing is in the industry people starting to hate on target date funds and to talk about managed accounts like they are, you know, this this far better mousetrap. And I think that remains yeah. to be seen. There is promise with more personalization, mm-hmm. but, you know, how often have you seen managed accounts where there's maybe a couple of different data points that are plugged in and it doesn't kind of live up to the promise and it's just a high price target yeah. date fund. I actually think target date funds have been by far one of the best innovations within the industry, especially when you start to pair up automatic plan design, which right. has driven a lot of the flow. And, you know, you get plan sponsors, you get advisors, they want to talk about IPS and all these spend time in meetings talking about like asset class funds when the vast majority of assets are going into like the target date fund decision, in my opinion, is the single most important investment decision that, you know, the vast majority of plan sponsors are going to make because that's that's where all the money is yeah. kind of flowing into. But I actually think that target date funds, they're starting to get some hate in the industry. But it's interesting. It's the people who have a managed account solution 
talk it's, about the incentives. You know, exactly. The folks who but, have target date funds want to talk about them all day. The folks who don't right. want to talk about managed accounts because that's how they get their lion's share of the assets. So Absol- you always got to look at the source right. where it's coming from. So No question. But yeah, I mean, target date funds are getting a bad rap, mainly from the people who don't have them. But, you know, are target date funds a perfect solution? Of course not. There is no perfect solution. And, you know, if we can help somebody figure out what the best solution is for them at that time, then I think that, you know, that's that's kind of what we need to be looking at is in the advisory community is how do we help that that person at that time in their life with, you know, what what is probably the best option for them? I mean, I don't have to obviously don't have to go into why target date funds make sense or why managed accounts make sense or why they don't either one. There, there is no silver bullet here, but yeah. if we make sure that people know that they have access to a number of different opportunities, they're going to make hopefully the right decision for them. Well, and I think that's, you know, where, where the trend is obviously going in terms of it's, it's not a binary right. either, or it's either a target date. It's either a managed account. It's either an asset class. It's, it's kind of a both an end approach and and really from an advisory perspective stepping back and saying okay i'm going to focus more on being kind of the architect of the not just the menu but how it's implemented at the participant level and so and, and this is i think where a lot of value add can come with advisors right is is you architect the different participant investment solutions that are available hey we're going to have target date funds and this is the population that you know, it's going to fit within this employer. And then we have a managed account offering. And it's like, just like you said, like, hey, what are one of the three buckets? Are you a do-it-yourselfer? Are you, a, you know, do it with me? Or are you a do-it-for-me? But then thinking about the communication and the outreach and the engagement to help people identify which one of those kind of buckets at this point in time, because that could change, Right. What do they fall into? And then making sure that they have a clear understanding of not just what's available, but how do they use it properly? Yeah, a lot of it is like what you mentioned with the bumpers. It's we set up the guardrails. We give them kind of the track to run on. And then let them run. You know, as long as we're going back every so often, checking in on folks, you know, because let's face it, you know, when people make a decision around their 401k plan. You know, I always have joked, it's kind of like joining the local fitness club. So many people sign up and never go back. And you want to make sure that we're at least setting it up so it can be somewhat on autopilot. You know, we got to be careful about that, but we want to have it so it's automated, at least for the short term, until we get a chance to go back and revisit. And, you know, for for most people, Hopefully, if they've done it right the first time, it's only a minor tweak going forward, if any. So, but, you know, again, a key to this is, is continuous conversations because, you know, it's funny. We talk about all the auto features and, you know, that, that's, I mean, that's the ultimate guardrails, right? Auto enroll, auto increase, auto investment. We got to be careful. We don't auto ourselves right out of a darn job. There's still things we need to be doing as advisors, you know, as, as you yeah. mentioned, as the architect of that program. Uh, it's not just set it and forget it like the old infomercial. Yeah. Ron Popeil. I used to use that, yep. right? The set that when he'd get the crowd to chant, yep. set it and forget it. 
401ks and rotisserie chicken. You know, as we kind of start to wrap up and, and, you know, one of the things we had talked about, you know, most advisors that have been, you know, it's funny, we, and I think this is more of an ego driver for people. They want to move up market. They think that, that, you know, moving up market saying like, I work with really large plans. Um, and there are benefits to that, but there are also some downsides. And, and, you know, there, if you think about just the data, 95%, maybe even more of, 401k plans in the United States states are in the under $10 million space. And so you've got, you're moving up market. You're typically going head to head with really, really good advisors that are saying the same exact things that you are, that are really capable firms. Everybody's kind of beating their, their, you know, beating each other up. And, you know, it's nice to be able to say, I work with a, you know, a hundred, a 200, a $500 million plan, but there's so much opportunity down market. And, you within your practice, you have, I think, a couple of hundred plans. You obviously have upmarket plans as well. But you, know, you had said that you really love that smaller end of the market, that kind of like one to $10 million space. Talk a little bit about why you like that market so much and the opportunities you see kind of doing the opposite of what everybody else is doing, where everybody wants to go up. You're saying, hey, I actually really like it down market. Yeah. And here are the the, the first thing I really like about that market is you're generally building a relationship with the business owner, their key people who probably going to be with that group for quite a while. You're building a relationship with people that can last a long time. And there's yeah, continuity of relationship. Continuity, but you know, you get to know people and right, wrong, or indifferent. I, you know, I, I tend to look at a lot of my clients as friends just because I've got to know them you know, over the years, you know, I know their families, you know, some of the clients I walk in and, you know, the employees know me more than just, Hey, there's the 401k guy. You know, they, they actually know me. They know, you know, about my family. I know about their family, you know, so it's, it's always great to, it's, it's like going to a family reunion when you go to an en enrollment meeting, which is fun. So the relationship part of it really is something that I enjoy, but it, it's also the, the opportunity that we get to help people in a way that they otherwise would never get that help. There just are not a lot of good advisors focusing on the smaller end. Kind of like what you talked about, they're all chasing the bigger stuff. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. I think that smaller end of the market is completely neglected. And I feel that if we can go in and work with that 20, 25 person company, where you do get to know people by name. You know, they're not just some person you recognize from the participant roster. You get to know these people. You know, th there's some enjoyment out of that. And it, it also goes back to the light bulb thing, you know, to get someone to get it and feel like you've made an actual difference in their life, even if it's a small one. That's just really cool. You know, that's kind of what gets me out of bed every day. It, it's to, you know, to try to make a difference in people's lives. I know it sounds kind of corny, but. It really is pretty darn cool when you get a chance to do that. Not yeah. many people in this world get to do that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Fees are not linear in the industry, right? So as you go up market, I mean, you know, once you get over, you know, a, a, a certain threshold of plan size, you really start to see fees start to level. You start to see them level off and up market. You know, it is competitive. Your clients, because they're more visible, they're constantly getting called on by legit competitors. So there's that element. 
as you said, I mean, I, I remember back in the day, the kind of the turnover in the C-suite with, you know, my larger clients. And I can't, you know, you constantly feel like you have to go back and kind of sell the relationship or, you know, how many times that you have a, a, a committee and you get them to a decision point and, you know, you're going to kind of like, you've given them all the information, you've talked with them about it, like the next meeting, hey, we're going to make a decision on this. And then you find out in the interim that like, hey, so-and-so who was on the committee, you know, they left and they went somewhere else. And it's like, yeah. you got to start over again. Those smaller plans, you know, if you scope them the right way, you can do really good work. They can be really profitable. Quite frankly, you can differentiate because like you said, in the small market, because it's neglected, there's not a lot of really good specialist firms that, that are focusing on that market. You can build a lot more continuity and loyalty in those relationships, which actually translates into, at the end of the day, it's funny, I think advisors, and there's still a lot of advisors that try to compete on whether or not they're a fiduciary, which is table yeah. stakes. And quite frankly, being a fiduciary is easy. Being a really effective yeah. one is a lot harder. And when you've got that continuity of relationship, and you really know what you're doing, you actually can stick with committees and get them to make a lot of progress over three, five, 10, 15 year periods because you've maintained that that relationship. And I would just say the last thing, like a lot of times those clients, they may be a little less sophisticated as, as buyers, if you will, but they tend to be really loyal. They tend to take your advice and they tend not to be as much a pain in the neck and demanding as a lot of plans up market. So, you know, for advisors listening, I would tell you, and I think maybe Jim would probably stay the same, though in his local market, he'd appreciate it if you you kind of like were hands off. But like that small end of the market, one, super neglected. Most American workers work for small businesses. There's a lot of great that you can do. And there's a lot of opportunity down there to build a really, really good business that has staying power over time. Yeah. And I will say I had this conversation with somebody this morning. You know, when you've got a lot of these smaller clients, you know, you're not at risk of having one big client gets acquired. Right. I mean, we've all seen, I think we've all been affected by mergers and acquisitions at, at some level. You know, we, we get the emails far more frequent than I'd like, but we get the emails from the client saying, hey, it's bittersweet, but we've been acquired and our plan's going to poof, go away. And, and there's yeah. nothing you can do about it. And it's frustrating because yep. you know you That's didn't do point. anything wrong. But if, you know, yeah. if your practice is built on all big plans like that, that are, you know, have a big price tag associated with them and one of them gets bought or a couple of them get bought. You know, I was talking to somebody this morning and they said, you know, they're a wholesaler and they're like, you know, I'm seeing practices that, you know, they're, they're a couple M and A's away from being out of business. And it's interesting. You know, interesting. That's a great, that's a great point though, around like, Right. It's the diversification yeah. of revenue risk. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if, you know, we've, we've yeah. lost quite a few plans. I mean, when you have 200 plans, the odds you're losing one to M&A goes way up. We've lost a bunch of plans over the last two years to M&A. And yeah, it hurts. You know, it's, a, it's, it's a punch to the gut, but we've been able to sustain it because it ends up being a small portion of our overall revenue and our overall client base. So. So it's been, Great insight. It, it, it's been comforting in that way that we can still budget for, I mean, because let's face it, we are still running a business. There's a lot of feel good to this, yeah. but we're running a business and we need to be profitable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I typically wrap up these episodes with a question and, and I'm going to pose it to you is 
this podcast and Fiduciary You really is kind of a brand and, and platform is really about helping make ERISA fiduciary smarter. And that's kind of one of my personal missions is I want to teach people to be better ERISA fiduciaries. What would be your one best piece of advice to anyone who is either an ERISA fiduciary, maybe it's a community member, maybe it's an advisor or anyone who supports people in that role? What would be your best piece of advice? You know, I'm going to go back to what I've been kind of preaching all along. Keep it simple, stupid. Figure out what the most important components are to what you need to get done within your plan, within your program. And focus on those things. Focus on making those things the best they can be. And if that's, you know, shoring up your, you know, selection and monitoring process, whether that's, you know, you know, getting a process in place with an advisor, whether they're a 338 fiduciary or a 321 fiduciary, either one, you know, just make sure your process is in place, making sure that process is sound. Don't overcomplicate things. I know we, we talked on a panel a couple of weeks ago about crypto and private equity in 401k plans. And, you know, on the surface, that's a pretty quick discussion. No, you can't have it. At least not if I'm a 338 signing on it. But right. the, the, the conversation evolved pretty in a way I didn't expect, which was kind of neat. It was a lot of fun. It was the goat of all sessions. No so bias. In that one. That's purely an outsider's opinion. I mean, I agree with you. I think but, you were right. Yeah. Again, it's, it, keep everything simple. Let, let's not try to recreate the wheel yeah. here. The one we have is round and it works. You know, l- let's not try to get so fancy that we outsmart ourselves. Keep everything mm-hmm. simple. Figure out what the most important components are of your program and focus in on those. And how do we make those things better? And once you've got those things down to a well-oiled machine, then you can start messing around with some of the, you know, fancy new tricks that are out, that are out there that people are touting. But, it, you know, let's face it. Most stuff in our industry is sold, not bought. So yep. let's focus on just the basics. And uh, once we get the basics down cold, then we can start messing around with the other stuff. If you need to, I think that's really, I think that's wise. In a lot of ways, advisors spend way too much time trying to invent a better wheel. I love what you said, like we've got a wheel and it works, you know, better to spend time paving the road ahead to try to make the ride yep. a little bit smoother, if you will. So. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Jim. Where can people go to stay connected with you? I'll put it yeah, in the sure. show notes. Um, what's the best way if people want to connect so with you? So I'm on LinkedIn. Pretty easy to find there. My website is hilbgroup401k.com, H-I-L-B group.com. So people can go to our website or catch me on LinkedIn. Those are two, probably the two best ways to, to find me. Awesome. Well, Jim Sampson, thank you so much for a really good conversation and Continued success to you. I, I have a lot of admiration for just your approach, your philosophy. Obviously, it's it's worked really, really well in the industry, and you've you've built a, a really good practice. And I imagine we'll continue to do so. So, thanks so much. Thanks for, for having me, Jeff. It's today. been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Jim Sampson from Hill Group Retirement Services. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com/podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode, along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show when I read each one. Until next time, 
Thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You podcast.